Well, you guys must be good because they never clap for me. That was a pity clap. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Um, good to see you guys this morning. Um, thanks for being here, for clapping uh, as well. Feel, I feel it right here. I feel the love. <laughs> hey, you have... You have uh, met us here in a part of a series called Anchor Point. We are uh, nine parts into this guy. Um, this is a series in which we're essentially trying to say that there, there needs to be something that when we think about our faith um, in Jesus Christ, um, that we can anchor our hope and our faith to because there will be times, no matter what age you are or stage of life that you're in, where there will be the temptation to just drift away and follow the current ideologically or philosophically or religiously or, or economically away from what is true and right and stuff that you, you've always held on to. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then you kind of get to hear what Christians are trying to anchor to, and you just get to observe and see. But if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, in this series that we're in, we're looking at a, a letter written by one of the disciples of followers of Jesus named Peter, who essentially said this at the end of his letter, and this is what we've anchored to. He said this, um, that he's writing for this reason, that I've written to encourage you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So he gives to these um, Christians in a northwest province of Rome something to hold to, to say this is of all the things that you're going to hold to in the middle of the suffering and persecution you're dealing with, this is the true grace of God. And the result is you should stand fast in this. Because in the northwest province of Rome at the time, they were trying to figure out, are we going to survive as Christians? They're getting persecuted from Rome. They're being misunderstood. You've heard me say over time that they, some people thought they were cannibals because they were said to have been, been drinking the blood and eating the flesh um, of people, which was really their communion and the misunderstanding of that. They were being misunderstood because they talked about the, the future of the world, the kingdom that is to come and overthrowing current powers. And to Rome, that becomes very odd. And they began pulling back from social events they used to be a part of. And, you know, they're just beginning to be persecuted and suffering for their faith. And they're wondering, are we going to survive? And so Peter writes and says, listen, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast. Anchor to this. All right. So in terms of reorienting you to this series, we said early on in this series, and in the first chapter of First Peter, when he wrote, he didn't have chapters, but as he began his letter, um, I believe that this summary statement will summarize much of what this letter is about. And that, again, if you get nothing else out of this, if this is all that you get in this whole series, then this will, we hope, kind of change your entire worldview anyway. And it's this principle that I am not the center of the universe and God is. And that kind of changes everything and, and helps you focus on so many realities and struggles in your life that it's not really about me to begin with. It's about God. And I'm not the center of the universe, and God is. All right. Last week we covered, and then we'll get you up to speed for this week. Last week we covered this idea, that choosing to orient your life for the good of others is so unusual that it by default orients them toward your God. That when you choose to serve other people, kind of with this freedom, with this great courage of saying, you know what, I don't really care that you need it or deserve it, or, you know, I know that you were short with me before in the office, you know, in terms of serving our community, you know, there's this 
constant pursuit of the good of people, even in the midst of suffering, when we orient our lives for the good of others, it becomes so unusual that people ask you for the reason for the hope that's within you. They're like, why would you do this? Tell me why. And just by default, our service for the good of people orients people to the good of our God, who did the very same thing for us, who oriented himself for our good, even when we were so far from him. And that's where Peter dropped us last week. Now we're going to pick up in his letter this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There should be a Bible around you in the, in the seat near you, in the pew near you. It's that red book. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning as well. So you can have that, take that, uh, and read that on your own. And we hope to, uh, to encourage you to do that. All right. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're beginning this final chapter. And here's... Um, just to give you an overall picture of, of what I'm trying to orient to this morning. Um, this morning's uh, emphasis within 1 Peter can, can, I think, best be understood under the context of a conversation about desire. Kind of strange, right? Desire. In other words, a simple way to think about this, in other words, is what you say yes to and what you say no to. Desire. Desire in some religions, like... Um, Let's say Buddhism, for example, the intent is to eliminate desire within the human. The desire is this kind of root of all kinds of evil and trouble. And so the Buddhist will meditate and try to find a state where desire ceases to exist. Because the pull within us, the desire to say yes to something that we shouldn't say yes to, can sometimes be so strong that it leads us into areas of life that become very confusing for us. We ruin relationships that way sometimes. We lose jobs that way sometimes. We hurt people sometimes when we say yes to desires that we shouldn't have said yes to. And the Buddhist will say, okay, the ideal then is to eliminate desire and just heard of nirvana, nothingness. Enter into a nothingness of desire. This morning's conversation in First Peter is really about what are you going to say yes to and what are you going to say no to and the battle that happens within us. And so desire, I believe, and I believe the Christian believes, is not to be eliminated. In fact, it can't be eliminated. It feels like a worthless cause, but desire is to be pointed in the right direction. And desire is a little funny, isn't it? Because it's so, um, the, the line is cut so carefully between a good and a bad desire, right? So in a few moments, or maybe even right now, you're going to have the desire to eat, right? You're going to get hungry at some point. Good desire should be fulfilled. In fact, if your body never tells you that you're hungry, you're going to starve. A good desire to have. However, after you're done with what has filled you up, you may have another desire to continue eating more and more and more, at which point somewhere along the line, the desire that is good to eat becomes a desire that's bad, because I shouldn't have the third whoopie pie, right? I mean, the first is fine, and maybe the second if they're small, but the third one, that starts to kind of push over the edge, right? So desire that starts off good can sometimes go bad based on excess, right? Desire also to, let's say, in relationships, to want to be known and know somebody else, a good desire. That leads to all kinds of dating relationships and engagements and marriages, this desire to kind of be with one another. But in the same token, the desire to be known and to know also leads to perverted desire, right? To be known, in other words, to have somebody with me just so they meet my needs, not so that I can meet their needs. And then we enter into relationships of abuse, 
right? All kinds of physical, emotional abuse and breakups and divorces and all kinds of things. And so there's this fine line in the human experience between desire that's good, healthy and right, and desire that is just abusive, perverted, and bad and excessive. And this morning, in a way, what Peter is dealing with is fundamentally, what are you going to say yes to? And what are you going to say no to? What are you going to say yes to? And what are you going to say no to? And this acknowledgement that this is a real and significant battle that goes on for all of us on a regular, regular, regular basis. And that there is not a point in time where you will stop fighting desire. There will not be a time where you will say, hmm, now I'm over the top of that. Now I've got it. (laughs) Now I've conquered it. So Peter writes about this big category. And here's what I want to say. And the the phrase for this morning, kind of the big teaching principle, is very simplistic. I'm going to throw it up on the screen in a minute. It's very simplistic. I've really wrestled with it because it's so simplistic. And yet, I hope it's simplistic enough for us to kind of remember. And and I hope that, and as I throw it up here, you also kind of fight against that. And I hope that you'll ask the question, what does that really mean, though, to do that? What does it really mean when you say those words? And what does this really look like in my life? So, So here we go. Big teaching principle for this morning is this, that every time I say no to me and yes to God or others, I'm choosing to live in the true grace of God. Every time I say no to me and yes to God or others, I'm choosing to live in the true grace of God that Peter is writing there. Very simple, very simple, very, very simple. No to me, yes to God or others. That's like preschool stuff. I mean, you could teach that in kindergarten, right? But all of a sudden it gets complicated as life gets more complicated. Every time I say no to me, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yes to God and others, what does that mean? Okay, and I hope you ask those questions, because we're going to try to answer them in the, the letter to First Peter. So, if you have your Bible and you're there, then uh, you're ready to roll with me, because we're going to start in verse 1. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, and he's writing, here he goes, uh, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Let me pause it there for a minute. Look at that verse again with me because it's so important. And sometimes when we just start reading, we don't really get into it right away. We're jumping in immediately, a very profound verse, a verse that you should ask questions about, kind of like I'm asking questions about this wobbly stool right here, if it will really hold me the whole way through. If it doesn't, I will say yes to standing and no to sitting, all right? Woo-hoo. Therefore, let's read that verse again. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is, and check out that last phrase, is done with sin. And so you're asking the question because you're smart people, is this possible, Peter? Are you telling me that there can come a point in my life when I can be done with sin because that's what you just wrote? And I will tell you in my human experience, I have not been there yet. I have not been there where I'm saying, yep, I'm done with the sin that continues to knock on my door. And I doubt that you have been there either because you're human. And so what Peter starts with, I immediately push back and say, I don't believe you. I don't agree. My human experience is different than that, Peter. I don't know. I have no category for agreeing with you on this. I, I'm done with sin. To what end? Are you kidding? Who, what are you writing about? We come back to it. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Are you saying that it's about my attitude? If I arm myself with the right attitude, 
if I kind of close my eyes and, you know, click my heels together and think of Kansas, I'll get, you know, floated to Kansas or something? Are you telling me that I have to muster up enough of an attitude that only then will I be able to be done with the sin that so, so easily entangles me? Is that what you're saying? Arm yourself. And that's the clear imperative for Christians here. Arm yourself with the attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What does this mean? What does it mean? He goes on in verse 2. We'll explain it in a minute. As a result, he does not live the rest of his life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, he's not going to say yes anymore to the things that he just wants to say yes to, but he's going to say no to them and yes to the will of God. He's going to say no to the things that are going to lead him into sin and going to say yes to the will of God. So what is Peter really saying? And I think there are two people, if you will, two, two people that Peter is writing about. Num- number one, he's writing about Jesus. So we see this. Christ suffered in his body in verse one. This is true. He suffered in his body And he continues that he who suffered in his body is done with sin. So here's what we know, and this is so helpful for us. When Jesus died on the cross, and here's what Christians believe, that Jesus died on the cross, and in that dying, he took the the punishment of sin on himself, on his body, and died on that tree, on that cross. And in the process of actually dying and then coming back to life, he broke the power of sin. And so here's what that means, that he suffered in his body, and therefore Jesus, unlike all of us who are now living, Jesus is now living after death. And in that process, he suffered in his body, and he is now done with sin. So Peter gives us this hope that, listen, after this life that you live now, you can experience a life that is a life without sin, that there is an expiration date on sin, and it is the end of your life. It is when you die that you will have this freedom from sin. That can be discouraging, or it can be encouraging. <laughs> it can be discouraging, like, hey, you're never going to get over it till you die, or it can be encouraging, like, when you die, it'll be over. You know, one way or the other. But this is what Peter's saying, that, that sin and life are kind of co-mingled together, and they go together. So look at the example of Jesus. He died, and now that he is been raised from the dead. He broke the power of sin. He who suffered in his body is done with sin. And here's the implication for us as Christians then. That every time then, every time that we have a temptation that's right in front of us, every time that we see something right in front of us and we, we say no to that, and in a way we suffer in our body for saying no to it, every time we do that we experience in this life some of the joy of freedom or being done with that sin. And we experience in a parallel way what Christ did for us. Let me give you an example. Um, You ever been in a home where you walk in and you smell brownies or chocolate chip cookies right away? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good smell. So it happens in our home regularly. You know, I'll come in and someone's baking something, usually not me, and uh, not baking me, nor am I the one baking. And, and, I'll, and I'll immediately think, if it's chocolate chip cookies, I'll immediately think, um, rather than let me get the warm chocolate chip cookies out of the, the oven when they're out, but I immediately begin to think of the cookie dough that's still in the mixer, right? And is there some left, all right? Anybody with me on that? Okay, yeah, all of us who like cookie dough ice cream do, okay? So here's the temptation now for me every time. Let's talk about sin in this category. <laughs> I walk in the home, and I know, okay, we're baking something. It might mean we're having company, and I smell chocolate chip cookies, and my desire is to say yes to eat 
whether the batter or a, a warm cookie, that which I should not yet eat. And so what do I do? Well, I wait for my wife to leave the room. Okay? <laughs> Either that or, you know, I, I say no temporarily. So let's just say in that moment I say no because I've been warned, okay, these are for our guests tonight. Okay, mm, okay and I know the greater win is to wait. Okay, be, go better for me that way. So I wait and I leave the kitchen, and I, and I go, I might go back outside again, and I don't smell them anymore. Now, I have just experienced a saying no to myself, right? I've just experienced saying no, and I've said yes to others. I've said yes to my company that's coming later. I've said yes to my wife and family who's baking that, like, thank you for doing that. I'm not going to ruin it for you. No to me, yes to others. In that moment, I've experienced a suffering in the body, okay, albeit light and not that big a deal, but a suffering in the body that I don't get to say yes to myself and get what I want. Now, here's the important thing about what Peter is writing about. When Peter writes in his letters, he is, when he talks about sin, he's not talking about the power of sin and overcoming that, but overcoming the act of sin. And here's why that's important in my cookie story. Because in that moment, I am able to say no to the act of sin. Let's say it's a Monday. We have company coming Monday night, fresh cookies. I come home from work. They're there, I'm smelling, I'm ready to go, and I say, no, 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 okay, no, I'm going to go do something else, I wait. I've experienced victory over this. Let's say Tuesday comes. We're having company again. Everybody ate all the cookies Monday night, we need more cookies, I come back in from work, and there's the smell of cookies again. Is my desire to eat those cookies gone? Because I said no Monday night, should I expect... That by saying no to an act of sin, if you will, on Monday night, that Tuesday night, that desire will all of a sudden be gone? See, Peter is saying that you will never, and here's our experience, we will never get rid of the power of desire to pull us toward things that we shouldn't do. And our struggle as, as Christians, as those who are following Jesus, is to say, I'm constantly feeling the draw to do things that I shouldn't do. Yeah. You're right. And I'm just telling you, you will until you die. And when you die, sin and life are coterminous. They're mingled together. And upon death and resurrection, new life, that power is broken. But until then, that power, that desire to want to eat the cookies, you're never going to get on top of that. You might discipline yourself more to kind of be more used to, ah, I smell cookies, okay, I won't eat them. It may become easier, but that draw, that desire will always be with you. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans 6 and 7. When he said, I don't do the things I do want to do, and I do do what I don't want to do. You know, what a wretched man I am. I'm so conflicted within myself. And so this example that Peter begins with in, in the first two verses is saying, there is going to be a power of sin that we may not ever get over until we die, but there are the acts of sin, the choice to do an event, if you will, of sin that you can experience victory over. And you've experienced that. And in that sense, you are done with sin in that moment. And in that moment, you have experienced a parallel life with Christ and his victory over sin, and you're done with that. So here's why that's important for the new believers here, because this is what they're experiencing. They're experiencing a culture where they're getting pushed on, picked on, for the things they're, they're choosing to say no to. I mean, he writes about it in verses 3 and 4. Check it out. He says, verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap 
abuse on you. And here's what's happening is that the, the new Christians in the northwest, northwest province of Rome are starting to pull away from the things that were very common to do in this culture. So what's very common is for um, when you have a, they would call them um, a, a guild or a trade union, like we might think of it today, or let's think of it as your, your company Christmas dinner, okay? Um, and or... Um, other civic events, like we've had intercourse heritage days or Friday nights at the park where the community comes together, or even family celebrations, large family celebrations. All of those kind of large events would include um, worshiping, or they call it, we would consider it worshiping, but they would be gathered at the local place of worship, the local church, quote-unquote. And in the, in the false religions of that day, the celebrations, the events would include drunkenness, would include orgies, would include all kinds of carousing that would go on. And you begin to, as a Christian, say, mm, wait a minute, I think that what we do at the company Christmas party isn't right anymore. Like, I think that when our family gets together and everyone's knocked back a few too many and they're just talking the way they're talking, like, I don't think that's right for me to do anymore. And all of a sudden, the people who you used to hang out with and the boss, right, who's looking at you and saying, yeah, I don't know, you know, what your deal is, you start not participating in that which you used to participate in and people start looking at you funny. Like, yeah. And when it comes time, and you know this would happen if this were to happen to you, when it comes time to decide who's going to get the promotion in the job, is it going to be you or the guy who comes to our parties? You know who's going to get the promotion, right? When it comes time to, to who's going to kind of get... The, the tongue lashing from, from, uh, from mom or mother-in-law or whatever for not coming to the event and not participating, I mean, you know it's going to be you. And, and Peter's saying, listen, you used to do these kind of things. You used to do this, but you are now done with sin. You're done with the act of sin. The draw, the temptation, the pull may always be there to say yes, but you're done with it because your Savior's done with it. You're, you're done with it. And now he acknowledges and he knows that when you're done with sin, you pull away from things that you used to do and people around you used to do, there's going to be pushback to that. There's going to be pressure. Your friends will say, come on, man, what are you, goody two-shoes or something? Come on, man, what do you think? You're better than us? Judgmental Christian type, is that you now? Come on. And that's what he says in verse 5. Check it out. Verse, verse 5. But they will, oh, excuse me, verse 4 finishes that way. They think it's strange that you don't plunge them into the same flood of dissipation. They're going to heap abuse on you, just like that. Verse 5, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. In other words, the people who are most critical of you, the friends, the friends who are most critical of you, and this, this is so important for you to understand, especially for those who are younger, you might be older than me and think, well, you're younger. Okay, fine, I'm younger. But even those younger than me, this principle is so important. You are not accountable to the friends who are critical of you. You are, you are just not accountable to the friends who are critical of you. To the friends who are critical of you for saying, come on, why do you not drink when the rest of us do? Why do you not sleep around when the rest of us do? Why do you not watch the things that we do? And why do you do those? I mean, come on. Everyone's doing it. 
And you're going to feel this intuitive, oh, I'm accountable to them. They're my friends. I must give an account or reporting of my behavior to them. And I'm just telling you, you are not accountable to those who are most critical of you. If you're saying yes to God and no to yourself and yes to the good of others, there are always going to be people, and those who are older know this, the pressure will always be just kind of get along with everybody and do least common denominator, don't make any waves, don't stand for anything, you know, really to purity and integrity and all that. Don't, don't do that. And Peter's saying, even those who are critical of you, they're going to be the ones who will be judged. They too have a judge. A couple of weeks ago we talked about the principle that God is above whoever's above you. God is above whoever is above whoever's critical of you. Whoever's critical of you for not doing the things that you used to do, not going along with the parties, not going along with the things that, that would be considered access, and you're not going along with that, and people are going to kind of say, come on, man, it's just a little thing. I mean, who's going to know? I mean, seriously, come on. You're not accountable to the people who are critical of you. You're just, you're just not, all right? Now, we continue. Peter continues in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And this really becomes the issue. That when we say yes, and when I say yes to the things that are not healthy for me, not within the scope of God's moral or ethical will, when I say yes to those things, here's what I know, and you probably know this too, I am not as clear-minded as I should be. I am not able to think with great clarity. I'm not able to see the way I should see. I do not have the courage that I should have when I say yes to things that are not within the scope of God's moral and ethical will. I just don't have that. I feel kind of cut down and shameful and guilty. That's just part of the deal. And Peter's saying the end of things is near. In other words, have a view to the end of life. This is not all there is. Have a view to that. Be clear-minded so that you can pray. And then he continues in verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Just to get you acquainted historically with what's happening here, verses 8 to 10 now speak to moving beyond simply saying no to acts of sin, but now also saying yes to service to others. This is why in this little phrase here I say, every time I say no to me and yes to God and others, I'm choosing to live in the true grace of God. You need to know what's happening. In, in the time that this is writing, um, there was no um, hotels.com Travelocity, orbits, or any other way to plan your vacation, your trip, your travel, even to see family online. Okay, I think you all knew that. Good, you all knew that. All right, so here's what happened. If you're a Christian in particular, uh, you are already kind of marked as someone who's, we're looking at you a little funny, we're not sure we trust you, we think you might be ultimately responsible for the fire in Rome too, right? I mean, there's just pressure against you. So if you're traveling with a family and you don't have the ability to kind of book things ahead of time and you are moving from area to area, the safest place for you to take your family is to another Christian's home on your way to your destination. And Peter knows that, and that's what's going on. And here's what happens in that time, that the church, the church, regional church, stays connected by means of these various travel lines that people will go on. And so people will travel from this town to the next town to the next town to the next town. In the process, 
they will stay overnight and eat with people they haven't met yet who are Christians. And it's the obligation and duty of Christians to do that, to open up their home, to feed and care for people. In fact, in this time, it was essentially, uh, law is a strong word for it, but it is widely accepted practice. In fact, it would be shameful if you did not open up your home, not only open up your home, but feed people while they were here. And there was almost no limit to it. The people were to come and you were to open the home. And, and Peter is saying, um, do hospitality. You see it in verse, verse um, 8 and then into verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. When we read that here, and this is why I want to emphasize this, when we, when we read offer hospitality without grumbling today, what we think of is I'll have someone over for dinner after church, maybe in, on Sunday lunch, and um, you know, we'll host them for a couple hours. I would rather take a nap, but I'm not going to grumble because Peter said I shouldn't grumble, so there we go. They'll be in our home for two hours, and you know, we're off and going. <laughs> this is categorically different. This is benevolence issue. This is not really hospitality as we think about it. In other words, people are coming into your home and they are staying for days and you are feeding them for days and you do not have a big house and you do not have air conditioning. You may not have indoor plumbing and you're having people who are coming to stay in your place and your obligation is to feed them and you oftentimes don't even have the money to really take care of your family beyond this week and then here comes some people and you have no choice as a Christian but to say come on in and Peter's saying in the in the corner of your house when you and your spouse are laying down at bed at night don't grumble to each other and say why do they always come here why did you have to build our house on the edge of town where everybody comes first you know why is it always us that they're staying with why do people always ask us for help I'm tired. Peter's saying, offer hospitality without grumbling. Now, over time, we see signs of it as early as 100 AD in Asia that the church began to make policies about this because it was abused, where people would just stay forever and ever. It became policy that after three days, you'd have to move on, you know, find a job, sustain yourself. But up to three days, even by 100 AD and beyond, people could just stop in at your house, and your obligation is to feed them and take care of them. And why that's important is this, because the expectation of the Christian, especially in that time period, was do something, be willing to serve in a very costly way to other people who are still kind of on the journey of faith with you. Be willing to be hospitable, not just warm up the meatloaf because here comes somebody, but who do I see around me that needs my service, that needs my help, who I might have thought of before this, this is too costly for me to help with. Because if I say yes to them, then I have to say no to me. And Peter again is saying, as you're thinking about your desires of how you spend your money and how you raise your family, if you're saying yes to others, it's going to be costly. He said, do it without grumbling. Offer hospitality to other people, not just warm up the meatloaf hospitality, but how can I serve you in a long-range, significant way that is costly to us and to me as a family? How do I do that? And that's what Peter is calling the Christians to do. And why? And why again? And he drops the why like, again, another trump card and another heavy-hitting principle at the very end. And he finishes at verse 11 with this, the so that, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. When you say yes to God and no to yourself, Yes to others and no to myself. That in all things God can be praised because we know this. 
I'm not the center of the universe. Saying yes to me, making myself the center of the universe, is completely inverted. Saying yes to God and no to, no to myself. A couple questions for us as we think about this. A couple statements in the, in the so what category. Number one, you won't be able to eliminate the power of sin, but you are able to celebrate the victories over the acts of sin. We said that at the beginning. You're not going to be able to, in your own life, you're, you're going to feel this, you're not going to be able to, to eliminate the power of sin and the draw and the, the pull of it. And I think it's helpful to think that way. But you are going to be able to celebrate the victories over the acts of sin. And that creates some new habits, some new tendencies. It creates some accountability and some help. You're not going to be able to say no. You're not going to be able to eliminate the power of sin. So when Peter writes, you're done with sin, the desire to say yes to things I shouldn't say yes to is always going to be there, I believe, in the life of the Christian. However, here's the good news. When you die, the power of sin is gone. That may be depressing. If you're a Christian, it's not depressing, and here's why. Because when you die, life begins. That's what Christians believe. It's weird, but it's true. The Christian believes, when I die, because of the resurrection of Jesus, life begins anew. And in that life that begins anew, that Christians believe is eternal, you are done with sin. As in, done, done with sin. On this side of eternity, we can say no to the acts of sin. And when we do it, I'm telling you, you need to celebrate it. When you walk out on a Monday afternoon from eating the cookie that you think you should have eaten, you need to celebrate, I walked out, and I'm now walking in the true grace of God even just for this moment. Second principle is this. You know that you're not accountable to the people who are critical of you. I emphasize that a little bit. There are going to be people who are going to say, when you say, no, I shouldn't, no, I can't, no, I won't, I'm not going to, you're not necessarily judging them, although they may feel like you're judging them. You're not making a decision about them. You're not saying, oh, if you do, you are a whatever. You're not even saying that. In your choices, you're making a decision for yourself, and people around you will feel guilty just by default because of your choices. But you need to remember, you are not accountable to the people who are most critical of your ethical or moral choices. You're not accountable to them. God is above whoever's above you, including your friends and your peers, okay? Thirdly here, it's a question. Who might you need to serve or support but haven't to this point because you've considered it too costly? Who in your family, who in your business, who in your neighborhood is in this category of as I'm saying no to myself and no to my financial priorities, no to my needs, no to me and my schedule, and if I'm willing to say yes to God and yes to others, who do I need to be willing to see again? And I've said, nah, their need is too big, that's too costly, too much, I can't, eh. if only, but eh, all I can do is serve meatloaf for two hours. What if it's more? What if Christians do more? What if they're willing to give more and serve more? What if that's what we do as believers? What if Christians are willing to, to give further than anybody else because our God has reached us further than anybody else? So it's a question in your own life. Back to the principle. Every time I say no to me and yes to God or others, I'm choosing to live in the true grace of God. And Peter writes, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And this is the God who has reached us even while we were still sinners. Every time that you say yes to God and yes to others, you're walking in the true grace of that God. And it is a challenge and it is a fight and it is a push. You know it and I know it. But I wouldn't rather be pushing and fighting for much else than that. To continue to push after the desires. What do I say yes to? What do I say no to? And continue to push into saying yes to the things of God, and yes to the needs of people around me, and no to
to my priorities, no to my needs, that we may serve people around us. Let's pray together, guys. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to be in your word and to see, again, from this historical perspective, from reaching from hundreds of years ago, from the pen of Peter to us today, that there are ways that we can think about saying yes and no to our desires that will move us and move people around us to understand and see our God in a more significant and clearer way. And so I pray for us that you would help us to see where we need to say yes to you, where we need to say yes to others, where we need to say no to the desires that come, the desire to, to want and to have and to immediately satisfy what's right in front of us, our impulses, our, our uh, just intuitive feel to things that sometimes we don't even think about. Give us courage, I pray, to celebrate the wins. Many of us are not very good at doing that. We want to kind of conquer the power of sin and struggle to see little wins along the way. Father, encourage us with the victories that are made along the way, with little moments where we say no to the cookies and yes to waiting. Remind us that this is the true grace of God, that we stand fast in it. And give us courage, Father, to be willing to serve well in a costly way to those around us, knowing, knowing, that this life is not about us, but about you. So we thank you for our time together. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do and the wisdom to do it. In Jesus' name we pray.